back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I am so excited to welcome my next guest. Uh, she is a teacher at my alma mater, Walnut Hills High School. She is also a former candidate. She was the Democratic nominee for U.S. Congress last year in the second congressional district here in Ohio, running against Brad Wenstrup. And she is currently running for Cincinnati City Council. And she, I need to preface this, no relation to me, but I'm so excited to welcome Jamie Castle to the podcast. Jamie, thanks for joining me. I am so excited and honored to be here. Thank you, cousin. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> well, it was so funny because when I message you, you're like, hey, cousin. I'm like, well, it's so funny because people have asked me like, hey, are you in relation to that, that lady running for Congress? And I was like, no relation. Because Castle is just not a very common last name, I guess. It's not Smith or Williams or... <laughs> right, right. Or Davignon was my maiden name. So oh, anybody really? with that name is related to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many of those are in Cincinnati? Um, is it just your family, basically? No, they, they left out to Adams County, actually. So there are oh, no wow. longer any Davignons in Cincinnati besides me with the maiden but name. They're in the second congressional yes, district. Yes, and that was a part of... My hope to appeal to folks out in those rural areas because I had been familiar with the area and the people in the struggle. Right. But alas. <laughs> all right. So we'll start uh, with your career. First of all, you're a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, how long have you been a teacher and what made you want to go into the teaching field? So I am a lot older than most people think I am. I graduated from Roger Bacon in 95 and I went to public school up until seventh grade, then went to Catholic school. So I have this nice balance of seeing both kinds of education. And I had a really good experience in high school. I was very involved and had great teachers. My favorite being my AP English teacher. And coming from public schools into Catholic schools, they have this assumption that you, you must be not as smart. <laughs> and I had to prove that. I was very smart and worked my way up into AP English and excelled. I was one of the top of my class at graduation. And my senior teacher really was a part of that. And he died a month after graduation. It was this freak accident. Myrtle Beach drowned and was just devastated. And I knew teaching would be something I would be good at. And I also did theater, but I thought going into a theater career wouldn't give me stability, but I could still direct theater on the high school level. And that would allow me to be creative. And I thought this would be a great career for me. So graduated from Miami in 99, went back to Roger Bacon to teach. Oh. And it's sad because I heard so many stories from my now coworkers about that teacher and how great he was just as a person. And I wish, you know, I could have got to know him in that level. So I did teach English. I directed all the shows of the theater there, but that's a deadly combination to teach English with 120 students and then be after school so late, painting the set, sewing costumes and grading all those papers. I just got burnt out. So I took a break after my license was up because there's this ridiculous thing in teaching where you constantly have to go back to school and go back to school and update and update, even though you're actively you know, working this job. But I had to decide, do I keep doing this? I'm burnt out already, but spend money to get my master's right now, or do I just take a break? So I got into real estate and this was back before the bubble burst. It was a mm -hmm. great time to do it. And I loved the, the freedom of it. 
And being in this professional world, it was just so different and exciting. I worked in Hyde Park and then the bubble started to kind of burst a little bit. So I worked for a year for a leasing company. It was Cincinnati Apartments Plus. Mm -hmm. So it was right down the street from my previous office. But I love that I had that whole experience because, you know, fast forwarding to now and talking about housing, I saw all the neighborhoods, I saw developments, I saw Section 8, I saw foreclosures, and I was in charge of checking their credit and making sure their whole background checked out. So I'm glad I had that experience. But then got married, had my kids, wasn't working. I was raising them at home. But of course, me being having to be busy all the time, I started my own business sewing. It was like contract sewing. So it was making things from scratch while I was raising my kids at home. And that ended up being an adventure. I made the costumes for Annabelle, the movie. Oh, yeah. Someone had reached out to my Etsy shop and thought oh, wow. it was just a parent. And they're like, OK, my producer from Hollywood's going to contact you with the contract. <laughs> and it was just like, what? So I made all the movie costumes, plus the promotional costumes that toured the world, was on the Ellen show. It was really exciting. Wow. I did a lot of the curtains for local restaurants like Boca, Soto, Anada, uh, Kaze, which is no longer open, Taylor in Wyoming. So I was busy. It was nice. Right. But when my kids got older and they were in school, that's when I got back into the teaching world because I was volunteering all the time. I was running the PTO. I was, meanwhile, teaching Sunday school at my Unitarian Universalist church, too, running that department. And just so excited to be around kids again. Right. And the principal at Mount Washington School offered me a job. She's, you should be a paraprofessional, which for folks that don't know, that's the teacher assistant. Right. And if you have a certain amount of kids in your classroom, you get an assistant. Um, and that would have been nice, except I knew the pay wasn't great. And I still wanted to control my schedule and work when I wanted. So I started substitute teaching. And that was my way of deciding, do I want to get back into teaching full time? And is this a nice work-life balance? Because my kids are still little. And then my kids transferred to Hyde Park School because they had a gifted program that my daughter got into. Just mm -hmm. fantastic. It doesn't exist anymore because they, they never had enough room. And that's a good problem to have. So they created the Spencer School. Right to take on that special needs. It really is special needs for those kids. So I ended up subbing at Mount Washington, then subbing at Hyde Park School. And then a friend of mine works at Walnut Hills and dropped my name and they started calling me. And then other schools started calling me, Spencer Center. And it was great because I was busy all the time. There was variety. Right. I could teach preschool through 12th grade. I could do all the specials. It was like gym teacher, right. music teacher, Latin teacher. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that was still my way of, do I want to get back into full-time teaching? So this was my life when the congressional thing happened. Right. It was not a planned. Friends, if you run for Congress, <laughs> you should prepare. You should you know, put all the steps in place ahead of time, raise the money ahead of time, do your connections, talk to your family. Mine was very impulsive, but you know, it is what it is. And I have no regrets. The urban school districts like Cincinnati Public, or you might go up to Columbus or Cleveland, kind of get this image of not being great schools. However, Cincinnati Public has some really good schools. 
you know, like the ones that you worked at and currently work at, I think you said right now you are an eighth grade English teacher at Walnut. Can you just talk about the perception of urban school districts and how we can kind of change that perception, especially now that you're a candidate for city council? Yes. So I live in Mount Washington and that is right next to Anderson, which is the Forest Hills School District. And actually, I think my activism started with that because they had a mascot that we had seen as racist and wanted to change. And this was back in 18 that we were really pushing for it. My church is very much into social justice and got involved because it's in Anderson and I have a lot of friends there. And in that whole conversation, there was a lot of folks in Anderson saying, you know, CPS is just trash and ghetto and dangerous. And my daughter would be lucky to graduate sixth grade without being pregnant, literally was said. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, excuse me. And, the, and these are all things you hear, not just as a teacher, but as a student in CPS. Like, that's the kind of feedback we got from our friends who weren't in CPS or our friends who maybe went to a Catholic school. Right. And I see now, well, number one, I stayed in Mount Washington because I wanted Cincinnati public schools mm -hmm. and I champion them as much as I can. But I see the problems as well. Um, the way that Ohio funds their schools has been deemed unconstitutional since 97. And it's never been fixed because how we pay for schools through property taxes. Right. So if you live in a really nice neighborhood, your school has a lot of resources. If you live in a poor neighborhood, you're struggling. It should be much more evenly divided. I, did, so, I actually did not know that because that makes sense. If yes. you look at a lot of these suburban school districts just here in town and how well they're doing and you go out there and you realize, wow, those property taxes are really high and that's probably why the schools are doing Yes, well. and this was when I was running for Congress, I traveled a lot through District 2 and one problem I saw was in Manchester, Ohio, who did fantastic and they were actually separate from the rest of that little district area because they wanted to keep their resources because they had two power plants that was just giving them mm -hmm. so much money. And then those plants closed and they were decimated. People had to leave because they had to go find work and the schools are really struggling because it's such a local thing. For Cincinnati Public Schools, what they have done to make it more even because what you see is you have these neighborhood schools and that's dependent. So if you're in Mount Lookout, your neighborhood school is amazing with Kilgore. Right. But if you are on the west side in a poorer neighborhood, you're gonna have a struggling school. So they had the magnet schools, which gave some school choice. But how they populated that was through the camp out system because mm -hmm. it was a first come. But then they realized that that wasn't equitable because so many families couldn't do that. Right. So now there's the lottery and that's a much more equitable system to get into these magnet schools. But the frustration, too, is that you have Walnut Hills, which is the number one public school in Ohio. And it is the gem of the district, the crown jewel. But if you can't get your student into that school, what's B? What is plan B? Right. And that has never really been addressed. And it's part of stigma because there are really good other high schools. Mm -hmm. Spencer School is growing. It is um, going to be great if they really push that and promote that. My son's in sixth grade, and I don't know if he's going to get into Walnut. So... You know, I have to think about that. Well, because for those who don't know, you have to test to get into yes. Walnut Hills. You have to, back when I was, this was, you know, 15 years ago, you had to take, I think it was the Terra Nova test. 
Um, now I think they have their own test. It but, just changed the yeah. last year, and it seems harder. Um, so, yeah, and then with the whole pandemic, is there learning loss that we have to catch up on mm-hmm. is something that we have to look at, too. So, but the thing should be that each neighborhood school should be as strong as these magnets. Find what works and recreate that. But you're going to have different populations. There's, what, like 38,000 kids in this district? Yeah. And we are servicing a lot of child poverty. And there's a lot of home problems, too. So teachers are so many things to these students. And that's what schools are. And how do we get them resources? So as a potential city council person, I realize that the school system is our asset. People come to the city or they leave the city because of the schools. So we need to make sure that they have what they need to succeed. We need to make sure the partnerships are in place with the other anchors in town, the universities, the hospitals, these nonprofits and philanthropies to get these programs and youth opportunities there. Like, for example, the rec center has a really good partnership where they do after school care and before school care, except the rec center won't take kids, I think 13 and up until like six o'clock. So there's this problem where these kids are just wandering around. Right. And that shouldn't be, there should be a safe place for them. Before we move on, I forgot to mention a couple of things. First of all, we are, if you guys hear like coffee grinding (laughs) in the background, we're recording this at Luckman Coffee. It's on Beachmont Avenue. I told them when I told them we're going to do this, I'd give them a shout out. Really cool place. If you, it's on the bottom of the Beachmont Hill, there by Big Ash Brewing and um, UDF and the Animal Hospital. So check it out. Second of all, coming up, but one of my upcoming guests actually is very appropriate for this conversation is Mike Morosky. Got him to agree to do the podcast. So um, I can't wait to talk to him about the, this, these school funding issues. You know, obviously you're a teacher. My wife is a teacher. Um, on the last season, I interviewed two teachers. And you hear a lot of these funding issues. That's really what it comes back to is funding and not having the funding to fund after school programs or this, this or that. And how can we champion? How can we is that just something where we go to our legislators and say, hey, we need we need this fixed. Like, how can we fix it? Yeah. Unfortunately, very much it's levies that keep coming up and it goes to the taxpayers and. There's been so much politicizing of schools being open and mask wearing and people being mad and taking it out on things. For example, in Anderson right now, they have um, the potential of doing a levy and there's so many people mad about masks. (laughs) And it's like, I'm never gonna vote for that levy. And it's like, that's ridiculous. But it shouldn't be begging for levies because so many people won't ever vote for that because they don't have kids and they don't see the value of that. But it really needs to be folks paying better attention to state politics Mm -hmm. and who your reps are. And it's unfortunate because of gerrymandering in Ohio. It's not only the congressional districts, it's very much the state rep and Senate districts. So there's a lot of laws that are made and funding decisions made on that level that hurt these local levels and better educated voters will help, but also we've got to get these districts fixed. Yeah. You know, and I actually talked, talked about this a little bit on the last episode of uh, the last episode of season one about gerrymandering in these districts. And I said, you know, it's, it's a shame that Cincinnati 
<clears throat> is a very democratic city. It's a very democratic area. And yet we're represented by two Republicans in Congress. To me, that's as big of a shame as gerrymandering, although it's because of gerrymandering. What made you want to run for Congress in the second congressional district against an incumbent of, I think he had served three terms, four terms already. What made you want to take him on? Yeah, and in people's minds, you know, he's he saved Steve Scalise in this heroic way. He is this hero. And a lot of people just saw that. Yeah. But I had seen his voting record and I had seen the poverty in District 2. There are some of the most poor counties in Ohio. And it's just, it's a shame. And there is a city in Pike County called Piketon right next to a nuclear waste dump. And cancer levels are off the chart there. It's just a dangerous place and they're not getting any resources or help or, it's just sad. But for me, like I said, if you're gonna run for Congress, it's normally you have a trajectory that you follow. And people have told me like, why don't you just start with school board? And mm -hmm. it, I had to explain the situation that it was. It was very impulsive for me to run. It was not planned out. It was literally those friends from Anderson and some in Mount Washington that are politically more aware. And I think Trump did that. He made women especially pay better attention and get active. Because when you don't pay attention, things like that can squeeze through. So in my little group of friends, if this was during the impeachment trial. The first one. The first one, yeah. yes, <laughs> to clarify. Um, and Brad Wenstrup was talking to Dr. Hill and she was being, you know, very dignified and classy, but he's just talking down to her and he was just gross. And my friends and I are like, oh, he's the worst. Can't wait to vote him out. And my friend said, oh, but no one is challenging him. No one in eight counties is challenging this man. And we have a month left before the deadline for anybody to file. And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> and then it was like, she said, one of us should do it. And me being who I am, like, oh, sure, I'll run the PTO. Sure, I'll run the board of trustees at church. I'll run the bake sale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, sure, I'll run for Congress. And this was a Sunday. And I slept two hours that night because after, you know, because immediately, I, th I think I thought that they would say, oh, that's cute, Jamie, you're so great. But no, really, who's gonna run for Congress looking around? Yeah. But it wasn't, it was my friends like, yes. Oh my God, yes, you would be amazing. Let's do this, we'll be we're behind you, we support you. So it was like, oh my God, what did I just do? Right. This was a Sunday and you know, I'm just wide-eyed, <laughs> terrified for a couple days. And I was talking to my daughter who was 12 at the time telling her like, oh, so I'm gonna do this. And she's like, huh. <laughs> and then Thank you. <laughs> that Wednesday, she's very matter of fact, Wednesday we're having dinner and she looks to my husband and says, so dad, are you going to support mom in her run for Congress? And he looks at me and just like laughs like, ha ha ha. And then that night we're watching the debate between the Democratic primary candidates and I'm like studying them because I'm just like picking up points. And is this for the presidential? This is for the presidential. Okay. So this so was like, like Biden Kamala and was there. Kamala. Okay. And um, he's talking to me about, I don't even know. And I'm like, honey, hush. Like, I, I really need to focus on this. 
And he like, it hit him like, oh my God, you're serious. <laughs> <laughs> and then that Thursday was my first speech in front of a group, the mm-hmm. Eastside Democratic Club. Right. And at that meeting was Connie Pillage and Jill Schiller and Alicia Reese. And um, I met Bonnie Dunkelman who had been very active. And you know she introduced me to a person that would end up being my campaign manager. And at that time I was um, doing a long-term sub sixth grade English and social studies at Mount Washington School. So, you know, during the day I'm teaching and then at night, (laughs) David Pepper was text messaging me like, hey, do you need any help? Let's meet up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, who is this? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know who David Pepper was. So he sat down with me, Jill Schiller and Janet Everhart both sat down with me who were the two that were in the primary the year before. Aftab Perval sat down with me. It was just a lot of people, Connie Pillage, a lot of people surrounded me with help. And I remember my Democratic endorsement meeting that happened, you know, a month later. And I was like a deer in the headlights. You know, I had to learn so much so fast. Right. You know, especially with healthcare, because I had to learn what Medicare for all meant or single pair option or all these issues that I had to decide how did I feel about them? And how was I gonna solve things and understand things? And it was intense, but it was impulsive, but I wanted a choice and that was the thing. I knew there were people like me that also wanted a choice. Even it was, it was hard and so many people said, oh, you're the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> and yeah, my friends well. just expected me to just put my name on the ballot and be that choice. But for me, I wanted to do it right, to do it to the best of my ability, to actually campaign and right. get out there and travel two and a half hours to Chillicothe in Portsmouth and meet people out there and learn what's going on. So I never overthought it because I didn't want to you know, stress myself out because it is stressful. You know, I had to do debates (laughs) (laughs) and interviews and really know what I was talking about. So I had that responsibility. But like I said, no regrets. I met so many people. I learned so much. And, you know, I thought about what I would have achieved had I gotten there. And Mm. that was exciting. Yeah. And so now, like, transitioning into the city council... It was supposed to be a one and done. It wasn't supposed to be, I'm gonna get my name recognition built. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that. It was, I never knew if I could win or not because there weren't any polls. Right. And I thought there's always hope because it's a presidential election year. There's so much pushback against Trump. But what happened was there was a Trump bump. Yeah. Especially in the rural areas, people showed up for him. He's this folk hero to them. And understanding that is really important, I think, as Democrats move forward. I did training with Sherrod Brown through his Canary candidates all last year, and I'm doing it this year twice a week too. Oh wow! And he gets it. He gets that you run people everywhere in every corner, and that's how you build the party. You have to strengthen the messaging because the Republicans control the messaging on the national level, and that trickles down. And I've seen that you need to really support these homegrown candidates. So right. in District Two, I think you need somebody from a Chillicothe or a Manchester and you run them there because they're well-known in their community already mm-hmm. and they're trusted. And that's really important. And, and sorry to interrupt, but that's one thing that kind of struck me about your campaign last year was, you know, you were in these communities, you were in Chillicothe, you were in Pike County, you were in Adams County, you were in all these counties. I couldn't tell you the last time I saw Brad Wenstra post about being in, 
in Adams County, you know? So you were out there trying to learn about these communities. What did you learn from that experience of going out to these communities that aren't your, not Cincinnati? Because yeah. you know, being from here, you're a lot like the, the people who live here, but you're learning this whole new community out there. And that's part of the fair districting, to have these districts where the people are, they have similar needs and um, characteristics because you can't service district two in one way. You right. have certain people in the city that have needs and you have people in the country that need different needs, like broadband access and Wi-Fi. They don't have in many places there. So it was interesting because I did see one strip kind of, if I'd showed up in Manchester or Portsmouth, he would be there maybe the next week, you know, when yeah. he was in town. I'm just like, huh, he is paying attention. <laughs> and in my debates too, you know, I would say, do this better or show up there more. And that was important to me. I learned so much and I think there's a lot, it's sad because they have an idea of what we think of them. And I think that's why Trump was so appealing to them. Right. They think that we think that they're all racist idiots. And there is racism out there, sure, because they don't have that connection. They don't have that exposure to different kinds of diversity. Right. And that comes with evolving into more inclusive. It's a fear that they have. And this one man in Manchester, because the pandemic did limit what I could do and right. where I could go, but when things were open, I would be there. I went to a city council, community council in Manchester, Ohio, and there's this old man, he's got a Trump mask on and a Trump hat on, and he's just hilarious, um, outgoing, but he's talking to me and he's like, yeah, I can't wear this hat to Cincinnati, they'd beat me up. And I'm like, yeah, they probably would. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, there he can. <laughs> and they did this thing on the river. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like everybody got their boats and they had their flags, kind of like what they did around 275 yeah. with their flags. It was this culture that they've created. And it was just this big party. And like, you know, the bikers showed up and it was just fun for them, this kind of thing that they rallied around. And it was sad that it was Trump that brought them together because he's not worthy of them. Right. But, you know, you get to think how they think and you understand how to reach them better to see the humanity of them and to see that they want to be seen as more than what we think they are. When the Black Lives Matter movement really struck a high note, what I saw was these little communities that wanted to be a part of that. And, you know, it was because I was running in District 2, the National Democratic Party kind of left me alone because I was a lost cause. So many endorsements I didn't get, like Emily's List wouldn't think I was important enough to endorse, which is a whole other thing how endorsements work. But I didn't have handlers or people telling me what to do. So I could show up to all these protests. I could say Medicare for all. I could say what I really meant and felt. And to do that in Cincinnati, you know, it felt safe because, yeah, Black Lives Matter. We get it. But to be in these small towns in rural Ohio, it was a scary thing. Like we were there in um, Adams County and at the courthouse and there's people driving around the courthouse and their pickups and their bikes with their Trump flags, you know, just kind of intimidating us and their guns out. And it, it remained peaceful there. But these people wanted to show solidarity and say, we're not racist. There's people here that care and we want to do better. And I'm still friends with a lot of them. I'm really proud of those young activists out there. And I see hope throughout Ohio because of them. The next day, I was supposed to go to the Bethel 
protest. Yeah. And it was just a honk and wave. But I was so tired from being traveling that I, I missed it. I was going to take my daughter because my friend Acacia Ubel, she ran for um, clerk of courts in Claremont. Mm-hmm became a really good friend of mine. She has a young daughter too. So we're going to take our daughters, make some signs, do a little honk and wave in Bethel. No big deal, right? Oh, that was the Black Lives Matter protest. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a protest. It was a solidarity honk and wave that became violent. I mean, people were yeah. assaulted and it was scary. She ended up, my friend Acacia, taking her and her daughter and hiding in a church and remaining there until it was safe to get out. I mean, that's terrifying. Right. It shouldn't be that way. And... It's that fear. And it wasn't even people from Bethel. It was a lot of people that came there because, you know, we're going to show our strength and push back because there's that whole Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group and the Marxism. It's just like, (sighs) these are just everyday people that live here that want to show that Black Lives Matter to them. That's it. And in Bethel, I think it was like the next day or a couple days later, they had another one Mm -hmm. and it was all hugs and, you know, we support you and all this other stuff. There's still community that gets together. That's like they have a Facebook group and they do things together because they're like, oh, no, this isn't going to be our narrative. Obviously, you say it was impulsive, but there had to have been something like something inside you that was like, you know, I have a knack. I want to serve the public. You don't just (laughs) wake up one day and be like, you know, I'm going to run for Congress against Brad Wenstrup. Is there anything that influenced you to want to serve? It was just a, a higher level of what I had been doing for all my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I never wanted to be the PTO president necessarily. I never wanted to be president of my board of trustees at my church. It was kind of, I'm involved in this organization. We need someone to lead. And I'm like, I can do it and I can do it well. And I will, I will serve that purpose and I will do well. And I will mentor the person to take over for me when it comes that time. And I think that's important to know because there is an ambition and an ego that comes to politics that the very successful ones have because, you know, they push through all the things that are hard when it comes to campaigning, the fundraising, the constantly having to ask for money, the constantly, you know, shaking hands and being there and being extroverted. After I had my endorsement um, interview, I mean, they had to endorse me because it was just me also. (laughs) So there wasn't that pressure necessarily, but it it was, you know, I went into this room and I was just expecting a casual sit down with McMeet four people, but it was, you know, a dozen people staring at me, you know, drilling me with questions. And afterward, fast forward, some of those people in that room became big supporters of me. Mm-hmm. They had said, you know, like, oh my goodness, you have grown so much. I'm so proud of you. And right after that, though, one of them said, it's a shame, you know, you're not more extroverted. And, but, you know, <laughs> and I was like, honestly, I'm, I'm more of an amnivert where I can be an extrovert or an introvert, you know, depending on my energy and the situation. <laughs> but <laughs> For me, running for Congress, it's kind of, this is needed now. This is a role that I need to play, and I can do it. And it was supposed to be a one and done, but this is a fun story, too, I like to tell. When election night came, it was so much fun because I was winning. You know, Hamilton came in first. Hamilton County, I won. Um, The city, I won. And my mother-in-law texted me like, oh, my God, you're winning. My mother-in-law's a a Republican, so this was the whole fun part of that (laughs) journey as well. Um, She she apologized after the insurrection (laughs) very much, too, to my 
to my kids. But um, <laughs> she texted me. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, there's seven more counties coming in. It's going to change. And I, it was just, we had a bonfire going outside. My financial director was hanging out with us. You should have just said, stop the vote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, stop counting. <laughs> I won. I won. Stop. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I stopped watching the numbers, honestly. And I got a call from News 5. And they're like, hey, we're going to call the election but you did a really good job. And I was just like, and I was just like oh, thanks. Because, you know, being in theater after my first debate, I stuck around and was talking to the crew and thanking them. And, you know, I'm very much, I see, I had worked in restaurants for a very long time too. So the people behind the scenes, I know matter so much and how much yeah. sweat equity and love they put into their job. So I think, you know, they saw that and, you know, Channel 5 was great to me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, because you did, I want to say you did a candidate forum with Local 12 as well. Yes, that was through. And I remember I, were, I was working at Local 12 at the time. I was a producer. You know, it's a bold challenge to challenge Brad Wenstrup because, you know, as we've said, it's a very hard district, nearly impossible for a Democrat to win because of how gerrymandered it is. You know, we had Jill Schiller in 2018. But before that, we were talking before we started about, well, William Smith, the trucker out there. And... He did no campaign or anything. He still would get like 30,000 votes. When they say you did a great job, they they, they, they meant it. I could, t- I could just from experience. So. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, it was funny because it was at that debate. So after the first debate, he wouldn't even look me in the eye, Brad Winstrup. It was very awkward. And that whole day was weird, too, because it was like going to the prom. Like, you know, because as a woman candidate, you have to really be mindful of your appearance. Because yeah. that's the first thing people judge about you. So I was like getting pretty all day to meet this man I've never met before. That was the first time I had met him was my debate, wow. my live debate. <laughs> it was just us. And then um, so the second time, though, with Channel 12, it was with Kate Schroeder and Steve Shabbat. Mm-hmm. And they had had a contentious time um, with the whole Green New Deal debacle. That was insanity. I mean, I was very... I'm going to say fortunate that one strip never did nasty attack ads for me, but it was also smart politics for him to not even say my name because he just needed to, you know, skate by. But after the second debate, you know, that was a little contentious for the district one folks, but ours was more, you know, sticking to policy. And I took time to, I remember a line where he was talking about entitlements. And as a teacher, I know, I can empathize with the student. I can empathize with the voter at home. I'm like, friends at home, you don't know what he's talking about. He's talking over your heads. That means taking away benefits from people that need it, food from hungry people. Right. Just so, just translate that for you. But um, afterward, after that debate, the cameras were off and I, they gave us little notepads to take notes if we wanted to. But I, I wrote down my, you know, my name and my phone number and no, I asked him, I was like, can I have you know, your number to call to concede should you win? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, give me yours, too. So we exchanged numbers that time. And he looked me in the eye then and he said, you're a good person. He's like, you're doing a really great job. I respect this. And I was just like, whoa, Brad Winstrup. You know, it was a strange validation. I was like, thank you. So on election night, when I called to concede, same thing. He tells me, like, you should run again. You'd be great at this. I lost my first time and you're a good person. And I was just like, oh, Thanks, Brad Wenstrup, <laughs> you know, 
But afterward, you know, Sigurd Brown had given me the call to like run again. Yeah. You would be good at this and others and supporters and my family, because that's what really counted. It's like, yes, we we will support you again because you do have this name recognition that you've mm-hmm. earned and you can walk away from that and be and I could, you know, be fine. But I felt like this responsibility, like I'd worked so hard, but there's nothing to see for it. Right. So now running for council, you know, I won Hamilton County, I won Cincinnati. And if you look at the precincts that really show up, a lot of them are on the east side. And just that alone, you know, I have to work to get to know the other side of the city and I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. But that was already built in. I look at, I raised $300,000 in a matter of months last year as a first time candidate in a gerrymandered district. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something. And that is something I can build on this. So the, the ideas I had of, if I get in office, what can I accomplish? I have that again. It's like, there's a chance. And I don't know, there's so many people running and there's a lot of big names and yeah. all these endorsement slate cards. And I don't know what my chances are, but again, it was never me setting myself up to be this political, glorious person. It was mm-hmm. just wanting to be of service. Uh, one thing that really struck me was how kind Brad Wenstrup was to you, because when you look at those debates between in 2020 and 2018, the second district was kind of an afterthought because it wasn't contentious. You know, you had in 2018, you had um, Aftab and, and Chabot, and then in 2020, you had Kate and Chabot. And both of those elections were so, so contentious. And then you had uh, yourself and Jill Schiller these last two years. And it was just, oh, it's just the second district, you know. And I wonder if that has to do with people thinking that <clears throat> that the second district will never be won by a Democrat. But thankfully, you know, because of the census and Ohio has new laws-ish about redistricting and gerrymandering, Hopefully it'll be a more fair election. And that's that's part of the reason why someone else didn't step up in all of eight counties, because these people that are into politics as a career, they want to make a good career move. Right. So they saw as running in District 2 this lost cause. Why, why even bother? Now, Jill Schiller was, she did well because that was the not presidential year. And there was that backlash from 16, where in 18, so many districts did swing. You look at Joe Cunningham um, and Kendra Horn as examples. And I kind of looked at those districts too as my inspiration of it's it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. And those like lost in 20 because of that Trump bump. Actually, it went back to the red. But um, Jill's time running against Wenstrup was a little more contentious. Like he had an attack ad against her. And that's because you did feel a bit threatened because she had raised a ton of money. She had the national backing. And that was that huge push that year. That 18 was a that whole reactionary from 16's results. Well, and she worked for the Obama administration, too. Mm -hmm. So like she had a record somewhat to run on because he would, you know, back in 2016, 2018, you mentioned Obama. It's like, oh, you know, if you're a Republican, I think that you and Jill and every Democrat, Y'all are saints because that is a hard district to, uh-huh. to, to, um, to win as a Democrat. And then you kind of brought up that Brad said, yeah, I lost my first one, too. And, th- you know, when you announced that you're right for city council, I kind of <laughs> I feel bad because I kind of compared you to Brad. I was like, oh, man, she's pulling a Brad because he ran for he ran for mayor for mayor of Cincinnati and yeah. lost to Mark Mallory. And then the next year is when he ran for Congress and won. Mm-hmm. He beat uh, Gene Schmidt. 
in the in the, in the GOP primary and then won the district. Emily and Jill Schiller did the same thing too. She ran for county treasurer two years later, mm-hmm. not the next year, but and she got elected. So, mm-hmm. what made you want to run for city council? So the advice when I was saying, you know, folks were calling me like you should run again. You would be great. The second part of that was. But stay in Hamilton County because it's blue. And if right. you live in the city, that's really blue, too. And there's this huge opening. So this is a great opportunity for you. You know, you could let everything go back to normal or use what you've built and try again. So that was why it was the city is Democratic, the county even. And in my brain, I was like, <laughs> city council makes sense. I like that it's collaborative, like the United States representatives would have been, you know, had I been a congresswoman, it would have been teams and committees and working together. And that's what I really like as opposed to like an executive position. Right. So I found that as being really exciting that I could work with people throughout the city and really get some progress done because with a new mayor, with a new council, imagine what we can actually do and push our city forward. There's that whole joke where Cincinnati is, you know, 10 years behind, 20 years behind. We are. I mean, you Mm -hmm. look at housing and Columbus even has this housing trust that's been there for 20 years. And we have this green Cincinnati plan that's amazing, but we've got it. You know, that was in 18 it was made. We're just, we're behind. And we've got to start having long-term vision and working together. There's a lot of egos that have been in place for so long pushing against each other. So I thought, you know, I'm not that kind of person and I would do great in this kind of environment. Well, and I think another thing is you have the will and the want to do good and you're not looking, as far as I know, not looking for that higher, like want to keep going up in the political yeah, no. world. Whereas you have these people, I mean, three city council members were indicted earlier this year. And, you know, so you have those, and, but it seems like you and other people in this race really want to do good. When you saw those indictments happen, what was going through your head knowing that you were about to run for city council? And that's the thing. Um, I had made my decision to run before a lot of those happened, um, but I was going to give myself some time. I was like, I'm going to give, <laughs> I just ran for Congress and these phone calls were coming like immediately. Right. And I was like, I need a break. My family needs a break because during the pandemic, you know, a lot of moms were doing projects at home because they had that extra time. And I wasn't, you know, my house was falling apart of disorganization and chaos. So I wanted to kind of organize things, take a break, decompress. And then those things happened. I think the last two and they were shocked to me and they made me mad because when I imagined myself being in Congress, I thought, oh, my gosh, what an honor. This is amazing. I'm going to, like, bust my butt and just accomplish so many amazing things. So for them to have that platform and that honor and to use it that way, it made me mad. Yeah. And I don't think PG's necessarily was I don't think it was criminal. His situation, I think it was icky and gross But that's the way the culture works for a lot of politics. And maybe we can change that. But we'll see. I mean, he'll have his day in court. I think that you have the the right intentions with your race. And that's what I really like about your candidacy. Um, What are certain issues that you want to work on or what are issues that you're passionate about that you will bring to city council and work for? 
for me, it's educational empowerment. There are a lot of, I've been studying what progressive cities are doing successfully because, you know, if you take those models and apply it to here to see what actually can work, there's a lot to be learned. There are financial empowerment centers in other cities near us even that, you know, take a person and they teach them how to lower their debt, raise their credit, get them housing, get them job connections, upskill them. Just giving people, you know, as a teacher, you know, education can be such a powerful tool. So we have all these fantastic anchors in the city, the universities and the hospitals and the businesses utilizing those partnerships. We have Cincinnati State, but that's an 18% graduation rate. Why? We need to look at that. What support systems can we put in place to get people better jobs, better wages, housing security? So very much my platform is people-focused. When I ran for Congress, it was for the people, and that still applies. You know, I wanna look at who are the underserved folks here, how can we help them create generational wealth? If we become a city that is more educated, with that comes even more job opportunities and startups. You look at Seattle and they're very successful because their population is educated. High school and graduation rates are a lot higher. If we can do that here, I think we can do amazing things. And to not be the butt of the joke of being so far behind. I want to catch us up. I want to be the model. I want to be the city that other cities are looking at. Like, oh my goodness, look at what they're accomplishing. Having that long-term vision. My parents both worked for the city government. My dad was an assistant city solicitor at City Hall his whole career. Oh, wow. And my mom worked in contract compliance across the street once we were a certain age and she went back to work. So I had seen a lot of the dysfunction that went on behind the scenes and a lot of it wasn't you know, the staff's fault, it was the higher ups and, you know, the right hand not knowing what the left hand's doing. So having that empathy and focusing on excellence is something I'm really wanting to do as well. My dad worked on the project when Fort Washington Way was rehabbed and made to go underneath. They built it with that foresight of being able to cap it in the future. Yeah. And that would be something I would love to be a part of to see what he started finished. Right. Because on those, if you're not familiar, Fort Washington Way is where 7175 go between 2nd and 3rd Street. And it's an eyesore and it breaks up into islands, the central, district, central business district and the banks. And fun fact, I worked at Holy Grail. I was one of the opening bartenders. Were you really? Yeah. Um, my <laughs> son was like one years old and I just needed a break. So I'm like, I just want to work oh, wow. two days a week. <laughs> this is my break going to work there. And it was great when the Reds games were happening because yeah. we were the only thing opened. But when nothing else was happening, it was just dead because we were such an island and nothing was coming over there for like the lunch shift. I would pay to park and not make any money. So it was like, why am I paying to go to work? Yeah. Um, I'm doing that right now but, in downtown. So yeah. Can you get free parking in downtown for me, please? All right. I'm kidding. Just, I'm kidding. Oh, if we had that light rail, friend, we could just go in. It'd be mm. so amazing. Can you extend the streetcar to Middletown? Well, <laughs> the, the old Eastern yeah, really. connection was anyway, sorry. another story. But to do that, we can build the decks and we can build wow. up to four stories on each of those four decks. It can be shared community spaces. It can be green space. It could be revenue creating. And I think with the new federal administration and infrastructure um, funding, that yeah. could be something that could be started. Todd Portune was championed that a long time ago. Well, actually, not that long ago, but it never, it never went anywhere. 
So to have that long-term vision, I'd love to be a part of getting us to the next level, doing things smart, you know, the smart technology, applying that to city services could be amazing. There are a lot of other things I want to talk about, but we are running short on time because I want to be, I want to respect your time. Um, But one thing, the last thing I want to uh, ask you and what I want to end with is we kind of talked about this before we start was one thing that I really admire about your campaign now is you know there are nine nine open seats there are I think I checked there's like 32 people running 32 or with 34 with at least five more we know definitely yeah coming this week so but you have a great friendship and relationship and you're campaigning with other people on who are running for the same office as you can you talk a little bit about that dynamic yeah, so, you know, another story for another day at another time is the whole Democratic endorsement slate that I was not on. And that reframed everything because previous to the endorsement, I was working with a lot of those candidates. We worked together to collect signatures because our signatures had to be in by May. And I was full time teaching eighth grade English at Walnut Hills. Mm-hmm and trying to collect enough signatures. And I did most of them myself. I mean, I had some friends and helpers and supporters help. It's never just the person. And like I said, when you ran for Congress, I only needed 50 signatures, but running for city council, you need 500 (laughs) valid ones, which means you try to collect up to a thousand. Yeah. Um, So I turned in like 860 something and 87% were valid. It It was fine. It was, I was at school like when they were validating and I got that call and it was just like this huge wait because I was running out of time because we're, the interviews were coming up the week before. So I had made friendships with those Democratic folks going for the endorsement early on and had seen and met a lot of the other candidates that were like charter candidates or independent Green Party. And a part of getting that endorsement though is you, you kind of decide I'm going to support the slate and you're confined to that. And that would have been hard for me because I am just, I'm the type where you you don't pull up the ladder, you leave it for others. And I knew I had a strength in my name recognition and my connections to being, you know, there's not a lot of East Side candidates. Right. So I'm just, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm not in that direct competition with a person and getting to know them and what they're about and helping each other because it's a lonely thing to run for office. So in 2020, I was working with, you know, the judicial candidates and the countywide candidates and Charmaine running for sheriff. And, you know, those are my friends and we helped each other. And that's what made it enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of the Democratic slate folks and I'm at peace with that. It happened. I couldn't control it. I'm running a positive fun campaign because (laughs) I couldn't have fun last year when everything shut down. So I'm just I'm having a work life balance this time that I'm very mindful to do. But I'm being smart with the money I've raised and very strategic and targeted. But I'm also helping a lot of my friends. We have a progressive little slate. We have like another little Democratic group that's doing it. I'm super friends with the Green Party, the Charterite friends. Women candidates, especially. I think we never have enough women running for office. So like Jackie running on the West side has been a lot of fun to get to know and Stacy Smith. I just, I I feel this kinship with them that I think will last past this election cycle, no matter what happens. And I'm going to be in the next group of the city council boot camp 
school mm-hmm. for through Action Tank. Nice. I don't think that's announced yet, but oh. I'm super excited and I'm sure <laughs> everybody knows. Because I see myself, you know, if I'm so honored to be elected, this is going to be helpful to informing me the side that I don't know as much, like the legislate writing legislation. Right. I think that will be helpful with and just connecting with more people. But I also see myself maybe, hopefully, being a part of the education for future candidates because it's such a lonely, um, combative thing to run for office. And it shouldn't be. There should be more help and support because you want strong candidates. You want informed candidates. So things I knew, like how to validate signatures. Mm-hmm. I've helped numerous other candidates do that. Yeah. And it's so funny because Stacey Smith's husband was like, can you trust her? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, of course you can. Like, right. I want I want to help because I'm not gonna get elected by taking you down. Right. I'm gonna get elected by standing on my own and people seeing what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And if we can help each other, like so much fun to canvas with a friend than right. doing it by yourself and do these events. So Stacey Smith has her fundraiser today and I'm going to be there, you know, cheering her on. I'll even send an email blast to my people and do what I can because you want good people. That's what's important. It's not if I get elected amazing, but if amazing people get elected and I don't, it's still a good place for our city. See, I think that's what we need more of. Is that's going beyond politics. That's going to who they are as people, not who they are as politicians. And um, that's something I just really admire. So I'm going to just say, if you live in the city of Cincinnati, vote for Jamie Castle because, you know, I support her and she wants to do good for for the city. She doesn't want to get in there just to, you know, be a city council person. She wants to actually do good and get the word out because like she said, she did not get an endorsement from the Democratic Party, which is a, excuse my my language, a damn shame. But if you you know we all work together to get her elected, let's do it. So Jamie, thank you so much. Castle for Cincinnati Yep. Which you have to love that. I oh I love website. it. I'll tell you, well, if I ever run for office, I can't use that now. So <laughs> we all sell it to you. Ca- you Castle for Cincinnati too. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so Jamie, thank you. Thank you so much. This and, has been great. And uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamie Castle. It was such a great conversation about her run for Congress, her run for city council, why she became a teacher. And it was just an all around fun time. She would do really well on Cincinnati City Council. So if you live in the city, check her out. Again, her website is castleforcincinnati.com. On the blog this week, I have that website. And I have more about her and how you can help support her campaign, how you can donate, how you can volunteer, and how you can get involved with the political process in the next two months of the campaign season. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we will be back with Cincinnati School Board member Mike Morosky. You're not going to want to miss that. I will just say that. I don't want to give too much away. 
but we already recorded it and he is such a fun person to talk to. Anyone who has knows him or has talked to him before knows how much of a fun time Mike Morosky is. So I'm really excited for you to listen to that. Again, thank you. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, share everything on the podcast, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the Clayton Castle Podcast. And the blog is claytoncastlepod.blogspot.com. All right, talk to you guys next week.